0: So, when I first got up here a year and a little bit over a year ago, I told you about something that I probably should have kept to myself. I told you that going from my house to here freaks me out because there's these things. They're called hollers. And for some reason, on the side of the roads here in West Virginia, I'm not actually from a mountainous region before I came here. Uh, on the sides of these roads, there's just fall offs for like 200 feet. There's no guardrail. Like it just falls off, and the roads are narrow and they go like this. So, like I've been working on trying to be okay with that. And I think I've gotten a little bit better. This is how I think I've gotten better. You know when you have like a splinter in one finger, but then you whack the other finger with a hammer? The splinter just doesn't bother you anymore, does it? So about a month ago, I almost hit a bear right by my house. I'm driving home and I almost hit, did you hear what I said? A bear. I almost hit a bear right by my house. It wasn't a deer dressed up like a bear. It wasn't like a neighborhood dog that had eaten too much and it was overgrown. I almost hit a bear by my house. And then my neighbor, when I talked to him about it, he mentioned that he had just killed a rather large copperhead in his driveway that week. So hollers are not a big deal anymore. Uh, My goal as a family is that we don't land on some show called When Nature Attacks. Like, if I can just not get mauled or bitten, I'm doing really well and so is my family. So hollers just are not that big of a deal anymore. I'm gonna stop talking about that. Um, Amen and amen. So, <clears throat> this morning we come to the end of our This Is Us series. And the heart behind this series is just really God's heart for you and for me and for us to realize that life is better when we live life together. That this race that we run is a team race, and we're called to run with people on each side of us as we move forward. And even though your culture tells you that you should be a rugged individual, that life is hard, buck up, soldier, you can do it, keep moving forward. That's actually not what Jesus says at all. He says, you are designed to be interdependent upon brothers and sisters in Christ who desperately need you, and they desperately, and you desperately need them. That's the design that God's given us. So Matt has been teaching through Ephesians chapter 4, which is a wonderful section. I am going to jump into the book of Hebrews with the same theme, the same thoughts in my head, and the same goal is at the end of this sermon that you and I are more motivated to live life together to get deeper with one another. I think it's a theme throughout the book of Hebrews. I'm going to try uh, to go through most of the book of Hebrews this morning and do that. I don't think the minor theme of life together works very well unless you see the major theme of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to go big, we're going to fly high, and then we're going to kind of dig in as we go. If I were to pull off one of my commentaries off of my shelf about the book of Hebrews the title that you would see often for the book of Hebrews would be the epistle of warnings the epistle of warnings that's a unique feature to the book of Hebrews is it has these five warnings passages and if you were to take one of those passages out of the book of Hebrews and just read it and then walk away they're kind of scary it's hard to know what to do with them so what I'd like to do is read a couple of those those passages those warnings let them sink in, and I want to take them and put them back into context. Because the author of Hebrews actually isn't trying to cause his people to question their faith. He wants the people to be assured of their faith. They're going through incredible persecution and hardship, and he wants them to have confidence in Jesus, confidence in their faith, confidence in their community as they move through life together. But these warning passages feel like they're doing the opposite, unless we understand them in context. So that's what we're going to try to do together. So the first warning passage, I'm going to pick two of the five, is in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Let's read that together. It says this, "'It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance.'" To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, we have another warning. It says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If you were writing a letter to some people and you wanted to encourage them, would you have added those passages? I mean, there's a good chance I wouldn't have added those passages. But let's look at them in context, and then we'll start to understand the purpose and the function of these warnings. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, we have the warning. But then verses 7 and 8, we have this illustration where it talks about the fact that the rain falls on all soil. The same rain falls on the soil. The rain would be representing the Word of God, this tasting of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting, this enlightenment that people receive. This rain falls on all soil, but not all soil responds the same way because there's actually different types of soil. For some, when the rain falls on the soil, vegetation and fruit spring forth. That's really good soil. But in other cases, thorns and thistles are produced. That's bad soil. So. For the warnings, he's trying to distinguish between them which type of soil they are. And there's a different function for each type of soil. Now, there's an encouragement to these individuals. In verse 9 of chapter 6, Six, it says, Even though we speak like this, so he knows he's shaking them up a little bit. Even though I'm telling you these warnings, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. So there's two types of soil. And here's a warning that comes out. But what he says is, you can have confidence. We're convinced that you are the good soil. So the warning is just, it doesn't apply to you as in you should be afraid, but you have confidence that it's not describing you. In chapter 10, after the warning comes, there's an example that's given. So in chapter 6, it's an illustration. In chapter 10, it's an example. And the example is actually The audience. He looks at those who receive the letter and say, "You have gone through really hard things. You've had your land seized from you. Some of you have been put into prison. Hard things have happened to you, but you have continued to persevere. You have continued in the faith." So again, he's saying, "You are an example of what it looks like to be the good soil." In verse 39 of chapter 10, he says, this. here's an encouragement. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are being saved. You are the good soil. So what's the function here of these warning passages? To one part of the soil, to the soil producing thorns and thistles, the warning is actually to point them to the cross. It's a call to salvation. The reality is Since the beginning, like from when Jesus had his 12 disciples, even though there were 12 of them who heard his words, saw the miracles, heard the parables, not all of them actually believed. There was one, right, at the very end, who actually betrayed Jesus, and he denied Jesus. He heard everything that everyone else said. He heard all of it. In fact, the other brothers, the other disciples, didn't even know that he didn't believe. That still happens today. It's happened in every church since Jesus founded the church where there are individuals who come to the church and they're associated with Christianity but have never personally received Christ. Some are aware of it and some maybe aren't even aware of it themselves. So the warning speaks to them saying, look at your heart. Are you associated with Christianity or are you someone who's gone to Jesus and said, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I place my faith in you. I receive your forgiveness and I serve under your Lordship. So For some people, that's how the warning functions. It points to the cross, and it's a call for salvation. For others, it's a call to perseverance. It's a call where it also points all of us as believers, those who are the good soil, to the cross. But now we look at the cross, and we're thinking, I am so thankful for everything that Jesus did for me because this warning doesn't cause me to shudder. Okay? So, kind of this is how it functions. If the Christian life is a race, which is kind of how Hebrews describes it, the warnings and the encouragements kind of function as guardrails. They kind of give us some direction. They kind of give us some boundaries of what it looks like to run this race. So that's the function of the warnings. Let's transition now to what the major theme of Hebrews is. The major theme, you probably won't be surprised, is Jesus. That he is supreme and superior over all things that runs from chapter 1 verse 1 to the end of the book of hebrews how does that fit into the author's desire to give them assurance and security in chapter 3 verse 1 he tells us to consider jesus put jesus in the forefront of your mind think about him have him be the thing that you contemplate that you think about throughout the day consider jesus that's near the beginning of the epistle near the end of the epistle in chapter 12 it says fix your eyes on jesus so there's this idea that jesus is out in front of me and I'm to fix my eyes on him and it goes on to describe him as the author and perfecter of our faith the author and perfecter of our faith so now this illustration of this run we're that this run that looks like our christian life has just expanded a little bit so we have our guardrails we have our warnings we have our encouragements to know that we're in the faith and if you happen to land outside of the guardrail it's a call to salvation to get into the race and then in front of me at the finish line the one who i fix my eyes on is jesus my great hope is jesus but he's also the author of my faith He's the starting line of my faith. So he's the one who got the whole thing started. Jesus is the starting line. He's the finish line. But it also says he's the perfecter of my faith. So he's the one changing me, growing me, transforming me to be more like him each and every step as we go through this life. So now all of a sudden, Jesus becomes the main focus of what we're called to do and how we're called to live our life. So what the author needs to do is he needs to make much of Jesus Because when he makes much of Jesus, all of a sudden we have confidence in the starting line. We have confidence in the hope, the finish line. We have confidence in the pavement beneath our feet as we run this race because it's Jesus changing us, transforming us, growing us, and moving us forward. So it's good to make much of Jesus because he is the one who's the centerpiece of this Christian faith and this run that we run together. So how does he do that? How does he make much of Jesus? If you ever wanna know what an epistle is about, usually if you just read the introduction, it kinda tells you what the rest of it's about. In the introduction, there's like seven, eight, nine descriptions of Jesus right there at the beginning. I'm not gonna go through all of them. That's multiple additional sermons. But one would be is Jesus is called the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. It's almost like you have the sun and then the light beams coming off the sun. The rays are like the radiance of the sun. Jesus is like the radiance of the Father. He's like the sunbeams, like you see the Father, but you feel the warmth, you see the light because of the work and the presence of Jesus. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He's also called the exact representation of the Father. If you're seeing Jesus, you're seeing the Father. There was a point in Jesus' life where the apostles looked at him and said, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus, almost a little perplexed, says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen him. You've seen the Father if you've seen me. So Jesus is described as the exact representation of the Father. We're going to take the plane up now to about 30,000 feet, and we're going to go a little faster. Chapters 1 and 2. Jesus is superior to angels. We're taught clearly Jesus is superior to angels. Those who are receiving this letter are probably Jewish believers, so they know the Old Testament inside and out. So Jesus is going to use Old Testament references to highlight the superiority of Jesus. Jesus. In the Old Testament, whenever you see an angel pop up on the scene, how would people respond? And they'd often just fall flat on their face, and they would try to worship the angel. And the angel would say, hey, get up, get up, wrong guy, I'm not the one to be worshipped. Because as we learn in the book of Hebrews, these these beings of splendor fall at the feet of Jesus. They're not to be worshipped. They're busy worshiping someone else who's far superior to them. Angels worship Jesus because Jesus is superior to angels. Chapter 3. In the Old Testament, Moses, all right, Moses from the point of view of these believers is like a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan. He's a big deal in the Old Testament. So, and God honors him. In chapter 3, it says that Moses is a servant in the household of God, he's a servant. But he continues and says but jesus built the house and he owns the house so moses is great he's a faithful servant but jesus built the house and it's his house so who's superior jesus is superior to moses in chapter four joshua's name is only mentioned once in chapter four but the point there is that jesus is superior to joshua Joshua was tasked by God to take his people, God's people, into the promised land. And there they would enter into some form of rest, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you've ever read Joshua, it wasn't very restful. It didn't take long for their hearts to drift. It didn't take long for their hearts to harden. It didn't take long for them to go and seek after other gods. So what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't provide a rest like Joshua's rest— Jesus provides a completely different kind of rest. When we come to know him as Lord and Savior, he ushers us into a rest that looks like the throne room of God. Now and for all of eternity, he provides a much superior rest. Jesus is superior to Joshua. He's superior to the rest that he provides in comparison to what we have here on earth. Even in the best-case scenario, Jesus is superior. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, The discussion discussion continues to evolve and change, and now he starts to focus on the fact that Jesus is a superior high priest. He's a superior high priest. So back in the Old Testament, priests would go before God. They would represent basically man before God, and even for a priest to go into God's presence, he would have to sacrifice multiple animals because even the priest had sin, and his sin had to be covered up. So animals would have to be sacrificed so the priest could even go in to begin to pray for the people of God in the presence of God. Now, even when those animals died, that sin was just really put on layaway. It doesn't matter how many cows you kill or lambs you kill. It doesn't actually cover sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that. So it's putting those sins on layaway. Jesus walks into the room as our high priest, and he can walk into God's presence based upon his own merits, He's the exact representation of the Father, perfect and pure and righteous in every regard. So he walks into the presence of the Father. No sacrifice needs to be made, but he chooses to become the sacrifice, to not put our sins on layaway, but to cover them completely and to forgive them entirely. And Jesus puts himself on the altar and dies in our place for our sin. Jesus is a superior high priest, in every regard. Chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10 talks about that Jesus has also provided a superior covenant. In the Old Testament, a covenant is like a relationship. Like when you watch two people get married, they, go into, they have a marriage covenant. So in the Old Testament, there was this covenant between God and God's people, and people who believed in God and placed their faith in God were saved in the Old Testament. But during their life together with God, if they broke the laws of God, if they turned their back on God, the punishment of God, and you see it if you read the Old Testament, lands squarely on them. They are punished. They are cast out. They are conquered by foreign armies. Jesus provides a different type of covenant relationship here with his people. We're saved by faith, but as you and I struggle and we sin and we make bad choices and sometimes we turn our backs on him off and on, the punishment Does not fall on us, it falls on Him. It falls on Him. That's a better covenant. That's a better situation. Jesus bears the brunt of God's punishment and God's wrath in our place. It's a superior covenant. Jesus, in every single way, Is superior. Jesus is supreme. And because of that, we're called by the author here to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's worthy of our hope. He's worthy of our excitement. He's worthy of us taking our next step to run this race to get closer to Him. Just like that song that was just sung We're almost home. We're running from here towards Him. He's also the one who started the race for us, He's our starting line. And we can trust him. We can place our faith in him because he's a superior high priest. He offers a superior covenant. We can trust in him. And because he's superior to all things, we can trust him every moment of every day as we move forward into this race. So we have great assurance, great confidence, because Jesus, the major theme of the whole Bible, not just Hebrews, clearly is superior, clearly can provide for his children. So we've kind of developed our illustration with the the guardrails and, Jesus is the finish line, Jesus is the author, Jesus is the perfecter, but there's more to it than that. Here comes our our minor theme. God has called us to live this this life and to run this race in community with one another. When I was a freshman in high school, I was on the cross country team. If you know anything about cross country, they score five runners. That's not me. They score five runners, okay? So depending on how well that fifth runner does, usually determines how well the team does. If the fifth runner has a bad race, the whole team has a bad race. If the fifth runner does well, the whole team does well. I was a freshman. I was a fifth runner. I didn't sleep very well at night. It was a lot of pressure for a young guy. But what the team did to help me out is we decided to use this strategy called the pack attack. So for the first two miles of every race, the whole team, the best runner, the second best runner, would kind of hold back and run with me we ran together as a group, and they would support me, and they would encourage me, me and the fourth runner. Come on, guys, you can do it. So we'd run together for the first two miles with encouragement, with help, to help set the pace for the slower runners. And because of that, we, run our, we won our league, we won our district, we won our county. It was an amazing opportunity to see how a team can function well together when they're living life together and running the race together. I believe that that's God's design for you, that's God's design for me as we run this Christian life, as we run this race that God has set before us. There's several verses I want us to kind of work through that talks about this. Uh, The first one is about knowing and being known, knowing and being known. Chapter 10, verse 24, it says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Oftentimes, the second part of that verse is the part that we remember, we remember, I'm called to spur my brothers and sisters on towards love and good deeds. The second half doesn't work unless you pay attention to the first half. Unless you've considered how to do it, unless you've thought through the best way to use your words or to use your skills or to use your resources to, to encourage someone, to spur someone on, you're probably going to be unsuccessful. I remember back in college, I had this good friend, and the way he would always try to, in, to spur me on was by starting this way. You know what you need to do? And then you start talking and usually it was really bad advice. So after I was told what I had to do and I was given bad advice multiple times, I eventually just said, can you stop talking to me like that? That doesn't work. As soon as you say that, I want you just to to be quiet. So he didn't really think through and consider how to spur me on towards love and good deeds. So we have to know each other well enough to know what encourages the person and what can annoy the person. What spurs the person on towards love, love and good deeds or what causes that person not to want to hang out with you as much? So to consider that means that you're in a relationship deep enough to know them well. Do you have those kinds of relationships? When I, was, when I was in college, I had a roommate named Jeremy. He was a sophomore, I was a freshman. He grew up differently than I did. He grew up in a church where he was basically told, God is the judge, he expects perfection, live your life outwardly as perfectly as possible, I don't really need any emotions from you. You don't need to smile. You don't need to get angry. Just move through life doing good works. And that's kind of how he lived his life, which there's some good stuff to that, but I think he's missing out on some joy pieces and some other pieces that God has for us. My background was different. I love to go out and have a good time. Um, love the Lord, wanna live my life you know, to honor him, but I also want to smile and have fun with my friends. So I'm, sitting, so I'm sitting there at my desk. I'm sitting on my desk because I didn't really use it to study very much. Don't do that. I didn't study very much, so I'm sitting there, and he's sitting at his desk facing the other direction, and I'm eating a box of powdered donuts. I was a runner, so I had to eat a lot. So I have these powdered donuts, and I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, I've got to fix this problem. So I, yeah, one of those. I take a powdered donut, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to throw this, I'm going to hit you in the back. I don't care what you do, but I want you to respond. You can laugh, you can swing at me, I don't care what you do, but you've got to do something, because he would never respond to anything. So I take the donut and I peg him in the back. It explodes, it goes all over him. He does nothing. He doesn't do anything, he just takes it. There's this big round splotch of powdered sugar on his back and he just takes it. Well, I've got a whole box. So I reach in and I got another donut. and I said, Jeremy, I'm gonna hit you again. So I did, I hit him in the back again. He clenched up a little bit, but he didn't do anything. I said, Jeremy, I've got a whole box of donuts and I'm going to unload all of them on you one by one until you respond. I don't care what you do. Just do something. So the third donut comes out. I hit him in the back. He starts to rage a little bit. He goes over, grabs all the donut crumbs, turns around, hits me in the face with them. We unload the whole box of donuts back and forth, donut war, full out. The whole room is covered in this weird powdery haze. It's a very small dorm room, and he starts laughing and laughing and laughing. It's like something just broke inside of him. And it was okay just to enjoy life and to have fun. The application of that isn't that you start chucking donuts at people. But like you have to think through, how do you love somebody well? What do they need to take that next step on that road? How do you come beside them on that road and help them move forward? It may be throwing a donut. It might be a kind word. It might be an encouraging letter. It might be a flower. Whatever it is, God has called us to live that way together. Chapter 2, verse 1 talks about a drifting and hardening heart. It talks about the fact that we have a drifting and hardening heart. It says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We need to hear what God has told us. We need to remind one another of all that we've been taught. Why? Because your heart and my heart has this horrible tendency. We tend to drift away from the Lord. We just do. It's called gospel amnesia. Even though you know the word and you know the gospel, there's this tendency to drift from it, and we just forget. There's a reason why God has us come together once a week, because you and I so often suffer from this gospel amnesia, this drifting where our heart tends to go away from the living God. We need one another to remind one another so that our heart does not drift. In the same line of thought in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness or the deceitfulness of sin. So that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts tend to drift and unfortunately our hearts tend to harden. They go this way and they do this. Part of that is because we have sin that lives in our hearts and in our life that we're unaware of. Sin is deceptive. Sin doesn't just say, here I am, repent of me and fix me. It doesn't. It resides deep in our heart. So what's the answer to that? According to the scriptures, the answer to that is as long as it's called today, I've lived over 40 years on the earth, and every day I've lived has been called today. So every single day, we're called to encourage one another. Do you have people in your life where every single day, they're trying to encourage you? Do you have people in your life where every single day you are trying to encourage them? Do you live life like that? Do you have a circle of friends, spiritual family, who you live like that with every day? We should have some sense of fear knowing that our hearts tend to drift and harden. That's part of the point of those warnings. So we want to surround ourselves with people who will encourage us, strengthen us, and help us each and every day because you and I are so weak that we need help each and every day. Life together in the throne room, chapter 4, verse 16. So in this verse, I'm going to emphasize some things as I say it because I think this is something we miss in this verse. Chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I've heard the verse used multiple times, saying if you're having a hard time, well, go and pray. The throne room is open to you. Simply walk in. That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying we do this. The throne room is a team sport. We go together into the throne room. So as I go to spend some time with the Lord, one of the thoughts that should cross my mind and hopefully starts to cross your mind as well is who should be here with me. It says let us Go into the throne room of God. Let us together beseech him and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So the throne room, our prayer life, is a team sport. We're not playing golf here. We're playing basketball. We need one another. We go in together and help one another. It's a life together in the throne room. The next point is a race run together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. So we're about to expand our illustration. We've got our guardrails. We've got our starting line. We've got our finish line. We've got our, our pavement, our winding pavement that we're running down. We've got our brothers and sisters who are running with us. Chapter 12, verse 1, as an additional feature, an additional piece of this puzzle. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's the language. Let us run this race that is marked out before us. This is a race. But at the beginning, it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. This is chapter 12 of Hebrews. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, he takes this time to walk through the lives of all these people who have loved the Lord and have lived lives of faith. It talks about Abraham. Abraham is someone who was called out of his home country and he lived and dwelled in what would one day be the promised land. He lived in a tent. But it says that even though Abraham was called out of that country and he lived where God wanted him to live, it says that his heart and his eyes longed for a city that was made by God. He had wealth, he had children, he had everything he needed, but his heart ached for something more. It's talking about that finish line. He was aching to be home with the Lord. It talks about Moses in chapter 11. It talks about the fact that he had the opportunity to enjoy all the pleasures, all the wealth of Egypt, but he considered it not worth it. He suffered with his brethren so that he could one day have the reward that's found in Jesus at the finish line. His motivation, his excitement, his biggest desire in life was to finish well, to finish embracing his Savior in the place that God created for him forever. So Abraham, Moses, their lives are testimonies. They are part of this cloud of witnesses who are standing on the side of the road, As Matt was running in the race, there were people on the side of the road cheering him on. So this is a new part of our illustration. There's this cloud of witnesses on either side of the road who have lived lives, who have crossed the finish line, and they're saying to you and they're saying to me, he is worth it. Keep running. Don't quit. Keep going. You can do this. So you've got brothers and sisters beside you, holding you up, carrying you forward, and you've got this cloud of witnesses all around the road cheering you on. For some of you, and even for me, my thought is, what is my life going to say to the next generation? What is my life going to say? What kind of testimony will my grandkids have about me? And It challenges me. I pray that it challenges you. One day, we all cross that finish line and we become a part of this cloud of witnesses. What will be your story? Will you be known as the Christian who did a really good job keeping his lawn looking really good, staying in your house, living life to yourself, by yourself? Or will you be known as the person who went outside of your comfort zone and met your neighbors, spent time with your coworkers, had friends who didn't know Christ and lived your life for them? Will you be known as someone who ran the race alone? Or will you be known as someone who ran the race with your brothers and sisters, and when they fell down, what you were known for was picking them back up? If that meant putting them on your back, you'd put them on your back. What will you be known for? What will be your testimony? As you're there on the sidelines cheering on the next generation, what will you say? What will your life speak? With this passage, I want to be honest with you. Um... Abraham and Moses are great examples. They did great things. The fact that we're talking about them thousands of years later says a lot. There are also people in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 where we don't know their names. And according to the book of Hebrews, their story was not nearly as glamorous as some of the others. I have no idea what kind of story God has in plan for you. I don't know what your life's going to look like. We know people whose lives come to a tragic end in faith. And we know people who live lives of faith to the very end, and they're amazing. We don't know what our story holds. The Bible talks about that. In chapter 11, verses 33 through 38, this is kind of a longer section, but I want you to hear it. It talks about those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. There are those who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, and they routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But, but there were more. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. The world was not worthy of these people. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Whether it was the person who lived in the hole in the ground or the person holding the sword that sent foreign nations to flight, both of them are honored here equally in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews. Both of them are men and women of faith who are in the cloud of witnesses calling out to us, keep going. He's worth it. Keep pushing forward. We have no idea if we're going to be the believer who's in the hole in the ground. We have no idea if we're going to be holding the sword in victory or a sword we use to end our life. Either way, the question is are you buying into it? Do you understand the guardrails? Do you understand that Jesus ultimately is where you're running regardless of how your life ends? Do you have faith in the reality that Jesus is the one who started you on this race and you can have confidence and assurance in him because he is the author of your salvation? Do you realize that he's the one who's transforming you and changing you every step of the way? He is the pavement beneath your feet, having no idea where the road will wind and how your life is going to go. Have you surrounded yourself with brothers and sisters who will love you, support you, care for you, and take you down the race? Are you listening to the cloud around you? Are you preparing your life to be a part of that cloud? Let me plead with you. Many of you are not living the Christian life as God has designed you to live the Christian life. If you don't have anyone that you're considering how to spur them on, we're not quite there yet. If there's no one who can help point out to you the deceitfulness of sin that lives in your life, there's no one that knows you well enough, we're not quite there yet. If you don't know how the people in your life are doing, if you don't have friendships that are starting to feel like family, who depend on you and you depend on them, then we're not quite there yet. Perhaps you're the Christian running down that road by yourself. God has not designed you to run that way. That is not at all the picture that we're given here stop running by yourself, and we wanna help you. We wanna help you with that. The pathway that we're trying to provide for you to help you get Christian friends who know you and love you, that you know and you love, is through our groups. And we have lots of different types of groups for you to pick from. We have men's groups, women's groups, community groups that meet outside the building, Sunday morning and Sunday evening groups that meet inside the building. I want you to find some place to belong. It's hard for me to sleep at night knowing that nobody is looking out for you. It's hard for me to sleep at night when there's no one that you're looking out for. God has not designed you to run alone. So let today be the day that you get involved in a group. Run the race together. We are designed to do that. We are truly better together. This is us. We're a body that worships on Sundays, and we scatter throughout the week in one another's lives living the church living out the church together in a city that so desperately needs him as we transition now into the last song and the band comes back up uh, this song reminds us of the finish line I picked this song out because it reminds me that there's a day when I become absent from this flesh where I lay this body aside and this race that I've been running, this person I've been longing to embrace, finally the moment comes where I enter from, I leave this body, I leave this temporary life into one single day that goes on for eternity, forever, where I get to praise him and enjoy him from then on, not just by myself, but with you, my family. This is a song to remind me of that, to remind you of that. Um, So if you would, stand up. It's a new song. Even if you don't know it, I encourage you to sing. Let's think about the day when we spend eternity forever with Jesus.